Welcome. You are listening to the Spiritual Exercises Podcast. I'm Rachel Amaday. This is a podcast for those who are new to this, where we challenge our basic Western Christian ideas of scripture a lot, where we dig deeper into what the Bible is actually telling us, and where we take a look at the context and the content that's actually in scripture, as well as trying to explore the original language. Um, Part of this podcast right now that I'm also doing is a proofs series where I'm bringing you evidence of the biblical story's accuracy. And so we're studying archaeology and history in that portion of the podcast. This week and probably next week, I'm probably going to have to split this into two just because of length. I have decided I need to go back and I need to read from my chapter in my book called Writing Paul. And the reason I want to do this is because we've got some new people to the podcast. It's been a while since I've really talked about why I started this podcast. Why am I doing this? You know, I think I've been blessed. I've been so blessed for about the last decade of my life after my life was just crushed and wrecked. Um, most of that because of my own bad decision making and inability to follow Jesus. Um, And in this podcast, we call him Yeshua. We call God Adonai or Yahweh or Hashem. Just be on the lookout for all those words. But um, about a decade ago, my life was just crushed and I needed a change. I asked the Lord to show up and show me who he really was because a lot of the doctrines I'd grown up with obviously weren't working out and weren't helping me and weren't healing for me. And I know that sounds super selfish, but um, my logic was this, and I think the logic still stands. If the promise of Yeshua is that you are going to have a changed life and that he's going to give you the peace um, of his comforter, and basically he's going to give you shalom, and you're not seeing that outpouring in your life, and I'm not talking about monetary outpouring, I'm talking about other outpouring. If you're not seeing that in your life, if you're not becoming stronger as a person, if your life isn't changing in the direction towards heavenly things, something might be wrong with your theology. And I knew there was something wrong with mine. So I asked God to show up or I wasn't going to be able to do the Christian thing anymore. I couldn't lie anymore say, oh, I'm a Christian. I follow the God of the universe. And yet nothing in my life looks like that. Well, God was faithful and brought teachers and teachings into my life that changed me. They did change me. The promise of following Yeshua is a life changed and my life did begin to change. And I still made mistakes. I was still kind of one foot in and one foot out. But as I started taking the next steps of obedience towards the Lord, my life shifted And suddenly I met a God that I had not really known in my heart since I was a really little kid, you know, before the doctrines of Western Christianity had gotten a hold of me. The God that I met in my youth when I was young is the God I rediscovered in my adulthood. Only this time I got to discover him both heartfelt in a heartfelt way and in an intellectual way, in a proper intellectual fashion. Because of that, I realized we have 
completely misinterpreted a lot of scripture. And, you know, in the, in the past couple months, I've been studying the concept of hell, actually, and what the Bible actually has to say about it. I've been shocked to find that my own Holy Spirit-given instincts about what hell really means and what eternal life and eternal death really mean actually really are there in the Bible. But the version that we got from Catholicism and a lot of Protestantism is not in the Bible. And so in a couple of weeks, I'm hoping to give you some of that teaching, which might be surprising and shocking for you all. But I challenge you, I challenge you, go to the word. Don't take my word for it. Go to the Bible yourself. Go start studying. You know, we have more access to information now than we ever had in human history. We have no excuse. If you really want to know what the Bible says, you can actually go start to look up the Hebrew words, the Greek words, the historical context. You can find encyclopedia information that will get you deeper than what people were studying in the 70s and 80s and 90s about the Bible. But we're not doing it. We're not doing it culturally now. I bet you're doing it because you're here and you're listening. So I was inspired to share the knowledge that God started bringing to me 10 years ago. I started to be inspired to share that knowledge, and that's why I started this podcast. That's why I wrote the book that I wrote. It's called Jesus Was Not a Modern Day Christian, and um, that title is exactly, I mean it exactly as you hear it. He is not, he was not, and he is not our version of Christianity. And we have got to start loving God for who he is and stop demanding that we love him for who we want him to be. That means we're loving a God of our own making, not the God that actually exists. So, you know, I put, (laughs) I'm going to read from my writing Paul chapter. I put this chapter at the very end of the book. Perhaps I should have put it more towards the beginning because I made the beginning of the book, the first three to four chapters are very challenging. They're long. They're difficult. But I wanted to put the things up front that I thought were the very most important things for you to understand about the Bible and about God before moving on. So I have some definitions of terms in the front of the book. I have a chapter about the family and what's been happening to the family culturally and how anti-God that is to break up the family and to change the definitive roles of the family. And We need to redefine the roles according to the Bible, not according to what happened in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, or 2000s, not what happened before then, not what happened in the Victorian age. What does the Bible tell us about roles and gender and family? Family is everything to God. If you do not understand a bridegroom and a bride, you will not understand the Bible. You have to get family right. So I put family at the beginning of the book, but maybe I should have put Paul writing Paul er earlier in the book because a lot of people I think are probably put off by the first three to four chapters of the book, never get into some of the more whimsical chapters that I write and some of the more really fun content um, later. But I, I did that a little bit on purpose. You know, if you're not ready to change some of your views, you shouldn't really be reading the Bible. I got to be honest. I think it's just folly 
for us to think that we know everything already or that everything we grew up with was accurate. I don't believe that. I don't believe everything I even think now is accurate. I have learned the hard way that I have been wrong too often in my life to be completely dogmatic about all of my theology. And, but I find that too many believers, um, instead of identifying as children of God who are constantly learning, they identify as a denomination. I'm Methodist, I'm Baptist, I'm Reform, I'm, you know, Lutheran, I'm Catholic. And those particular identities are not going to do you any good in the long run. Because there is no denomination in scripture. There is only here is the way of life and here is the way of death. And you get to choose. And so I think we need to strip ourselves of the identities that we have put upon ourselves and upon the Lord that don't belong. And it takes some humility and it takes um, some dealing with cognitive dissonance. And it actually takes, I think there actually has been, you know, there's been a lot of talk about mass psychosis lately. I think there has been a religious mass psychosis. The Catholic Church was very, very good at uh, encouraging people not to read their own Bibles for themselves, at um, incorporating paganism everywhere they went. And then the Protestant Church still kept a lot of that, even when they broke off from Catholicism. And we are dealing with that stuff still today. This is a problem because the God of the universe, some of that stuff doesn't belong to him. In fact, some of it maligns his character. We have got to be humble enough to change. We've got to. Because the the world needs the light of God, not the light of our religious doctrine. There's no light in that. It's just another man-made trap. And so... I'm going to read to you. (laughs) Okay, that's quite a long intro. I apologize. But I want to tell you why I'm doing this. I'm going to read to you from my Writing Paul chapter. As I read, I I may stop and make some commentary. I may even have some things that have changed in my mind since writing this. This was a while ago that I wrote this. Um, But hopefully what this does is challenge you a little bit in your conceptions of Paul. Why do we need to deal with Paul? Well, you're going to find out in this chapter, but one reason is Marcionism. Marcion was a guy that existed around 100 AD, and his concept was that Paul was the real, you know, he had created the real religion that we needed to follow now, and that the Old Testament was just for the Jews, and the New Testament got was so much nicer than the Old Testament God, and that um, that Paul was the one who described the New Testament God properly, and this separation of Jesus from the books of the law and the prophets is what we see even to this day. Marcionism ran rampant and grew quite a bit, and so we have to deal with interpreting Paul correctly because Marcionism misinterprets Paul. And really, there's a lot of church doctrine that's purely based on Paul, that has no testimony really from anyone else in Scripture. Paul himself would have called that a huge problem. You have to have at least two witnesses, according to the Bible, to establish a truth. And if Paul is the only witness to these truths, then you have to question, is Paul telling the truth or is my interpretation of Paul wrong? So we have to get Paul right. We have to fix what we think about Paul and what we think about his writings. So with all of that introduction, I'm going to start in on my chapter 12 in my book. It's called Writing Paul. If you've read each of my essays to date, you may be able to write this one for me. 
Yet I know that there is much we haven't discussed regarding one scriptural subject that will trouble us if left untouched. Paul. Poor, misunderstood, bastardized Paul. Each time we see Yeshua following and defending God's law, you can almost hear a pastor screeching out, unable to control the desperate defense of modern Christian doctrine. But Paul! But Paul! But Paul! We must deal with the common misinterpretation of this brilliant Pharisee in order to straighten out the doctrine prevalent today in most American churches. I believe this doctrine that God's law has been changed, diminished, or done away with by the cross has caused most of the denominational splits in the church and has also stolen the power of the Christian testimony and walk. Without God's instruction, which is how law is defined for the writers of the Old Testament, law equals instruction, how are we to know what it means to follow Yeshua? How subjective is our walk with God? Today, it is subjective enough to cause tens of thousands of denominational differences. There aren't even tens of thousands of biblical commands. There are precisely 613, and many of them only apply to the land of Israel, the temple, the Levitical priesthood, etc., Subjective legal frameworks have created a mess of doctrines and man-made laws, including, but not limited to, Catholic Church indulgences, prohibitions on dancing, communion every Sunday or communion once a year, once a month, Good Friday, Ash Wednesday, imperative Sunday church attendance, sexual identity confusion, icon worship, baby baptism versus adult baptism, females prohibited from leadership, confusion on the commands about tithing and giving, prosperity gospel, diminishing gifts of the Holy Spirit. You could probably add your own list of confusing differences between denominations. How can this be when we all have one scripture? Many reasons no doubt contribute, but one inescapable figure often stands at the receiving end of pointed fingers and vehement arguments. In both defense of and subversion of church doctrine, Paul is the central figure. It is particularly his teachings about the law, he speaks of many laws, and we will discover this in a moment, that severs unity and encourages debate. Does Paul teach that God's laws, some or all, are done away with or not? We must finally answer this question. It is the underpinning for massive disruption and confusion among masses of believers. Many churches would say not, yet do not teach the fullness of the law to their congregations, adding to the mass confusion. Paul has been used to redefine, undermine, and trash the laws of God and the obedient believer who follows them. I wonder what he would think about this disturbing trend. In a future life, perhaps we can all accost him with questions and plead for a response to his often unwieldy writings. Until then, there are a few ways to untangle this doctrinal mess on your own. 1. Read entire books at once. Never take one verse out without context and expand upon what you think Paul is saying. Paul was brilliant and his writings were complex. Without context, anything but especially Paul, can be misinterpreted. 2. Compare what you think Paul's doctrine is to what Yeshua teaches. If they are out of alignment, your interpretation of Paul is out of alignment. Go back and find out why. 
3. Make sure your interpretation of Paul is not adding to or taking away from the laws of God. Deuteronomy 12.32 tells us that we are not to add to or take away from God's law. If Paul added or took away from, he disobeyed a dictate that he would have been very familiar with. That is out of character for a man we esteem so highly, and for a Pharisee of Pharisees, see Acts 23 verse 6, according to his own self-description. And yes, in a moment, we will dig deeper into these and other useful applications so I can show you what I mean. First, why, oh why, do we need to do this and do it regularly? In 2 Peter three sixteen through 17 Peter says this about Paul. I quote, He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard, so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. End quote. We need humility when interpreting Paul. The brilliant Pharisee who likely had more scripture memorized than we memorize anything probably didn't attempt to change God's laws or introduce new doctrine that Yeshua did not. If we think he is, we are wrong. Not Paul, not Yeshua. According to Peter, any claim that Paul teaches against God's laws is an error of the lawless. I fear we play around in this error quite a bit. We are human. That's what we do. Get things wrong. I do it. You do it. None of us is God, which is why we need each other and we need to test the scriptures and the spirit of the teachings we absorb. One of the marvelous things about scripture is you can dig into it like an archaeologist. You may have uncovered a dinosaur leg that you misidentify as an arm until you dig further and find more of the structure. Perhaps it's a relief to find the full leg. Perhaps it's a horror. It does not change the fact that you are unearthing a leg, not an arm. Dig further. Find the structure. Even if it offends you, your pastor, or your parents, the truth is the truth whether we like it or not. The Bible builds through time, understanding, story, and prophecy. The beginning is never going to be an unnecessary afterthought. It always provides definition and meaning for what comes later. If our interpretations of Paul disregard or change the beginning, then we are wrong, not Paul. Okay, I hear you screaming that you understand this concept, so let's get into the nitty-gritty of modern Christian doctrine within a few helpful principles. In applying these principles, we can better ensure we do not interpret Scripture with a mess of inconsistencies. 1. Anytime Scriptures, or Word of God, is used, it means the Old Testament. This one is simple. At the time of the writing of the New Testament, the full canon of Scripture was not yet assembled. Only the Old Testament existed. Please do not infer a historical inaccuracy when New Testament writers discuss God's Word. When any New Testament writer speaks of God's Word, they mean the Old Testament. When John tells us Yeshua was the Word, it means he was the Old Testament. This will be helpful, I promise. Number two, the New Testament is an 80% repeat of the Old there is not a lot of new in the New Testament. From Yeshua to Paul, Old Testament writings are being used to define and discern present issues. Yeshua restores and imbues meaning to the Old Testament. 
Paul uses it to confirm the gospel he is preaching. When you read and see quotations or centered paragraphs or all-capped phrases or passages that seem like idioms, it is because they are quoting the Old Testament. As Paul states in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, I quote, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. End quote. Now, what do we know scripture means here? See the first principle, please. The Old Testament is breathed out by God and profitable for every use in our faith to equip the believer for good works. Yes, works. Still, Paul? Still? We're still on works? If I could wink at you through the page, I would. All winking aside, remember, Paul teaches, as the rest of God's word does, that salvation is by the grace of God alone, which cannot be earned. But relationship with the Lord is accompanied by obedience to his law. We obey because of our relationship with him, not for our relationship with him. To follow Yeshua means to learn from his word and to be equipped to bring light to the nation, nations through our testimony. Our testimony is created in a life lived for the Lord. What good is the word of our testimony if we accept Christ and then do nothing with it afterward? If our life does not change, there is no testimony. Our lives will likely resemble that of our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. We will be called into a different life, one that separates us, one where we are holy. There is nothing new in that. All of God's people in all times and places have been countercultural. We are still repeating the Old Testament, and when we quote the New Testament, we are often quoting the Old Testament. Walking with God is our testimony, and that obedience aligns with God's instructions from the beginning. This is not new. I'd encourage you to go and look at this one on your own. You will be astonished at the repetition in Scripture. It speaks to the unity of the text and the miraculous nature of our Bible. Only God could orchestrate such perfect repetition throughout so many authors and such an expanse of time. We would expect nothing less of the God of the universe. Principle number three. Yeshua's message went first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Romans 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. End quote. The Jews had to receive the Messiah first, because they were the ones looking for him. In fact, they were the only ones who knew to and knew how to look for him. Hundreds of prophecies existed in the Old Testament about Yeshua's coming. There was only one group of people who knew those prophecies, who could evaluate them in light of Yeshua, and only a Levitical priest, John the Baptist, could proclaim that he was a perfect sacrifice. What other people group could take the fullness of the gospel to the nations? Who else would even care that he had come? The Roman Empire was polytheistic. In a culture cluttered with hundreds of gods, Yeshua could easily have just been added as one more. Sure, he might be a god. There you go. You get your own little statue. Only a Jew would have known the Deuteronomy 13 test. Deuteronomy 13 delineates what makes a true or false prophet. Anyone who led the people away from the teachings of Moses would have been considered false. Yeshua never did this. Hence, many Jews, including Paul, followed him. If we now teach today that Yeshua changed the laws of Moses or did away with any of it, we teach a Messiah who violates the very test he has to pass in order to be considered the Messiah. Paul knew this. He knew that if he taught against the law of Moses, he would immediately disqualify his own teachings and the lordship of Yeshua. His ministry among the Jews would have ended quickly. 
In fact, he is falsely accused of doing just this and takes the accusation quite seriously. In Acts 21, 17 through 26, Paul arrives in Jerusalem and shares with his counterparts there all that he has been doing and teaching. They have relief hearing his faith and proclaim, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs, end quote. They go on to encourage Paul to join four men in taking a Nazarite vow, according to Numbers 6, 1 through 21. By publicly taking this vow, Paul would be able to assure all that he did not teach against Moses' law, but that he taught and lived by it. Paul took the vow. He was eager to show that he believed the law of Moses was still in effect. The educated Jews would have rejected his teachings otherwise, but Paul knew scripture. He knew Deuteronomy. Moreover, he did not believe that Yeshua changed or did away with the law. Only the Jews would have traversed these arguments effectively, hammering them out using something like the Nazarite vow. It was essential that the Jews accept Yeshua as Messiah and Paul's teaching as valid. If they believed Yeshua provided a route for our unification with God, not a route away from Torah, by whose authority do we now claim God's law was made to have no effect at the cross? This is not what Paul taught. This is not what the church in Acts taught. This is not what Peter taught. We should not interpret the gospel differently than they did. Principle number four. Scripture does not contradict itself. In researching this particular section, my heart regularly sank and my fingers itched to hammer out quick, heated responses to the many excruciating articles in places like Bible.org and the Christian Courier that profaned scripture and misinterpreted, even in obvious ways, what Paul discussed about God's law. Alas, I decided to spend my time better. Just know when you go to understand Paul online, you will be bombarded with doctrines proclaiming the ideas of spiritual law, moral law, and the law of God was nailed to the cross, Noahide law. Scripture does not support these ideas, even if it seems to do so on the surface. Many doctrines have come and gone, but let's deal with what Scripture says, not man. Psalm 19, verses 9 through 11, says this, and I quote, God's laws are pure, eternal just. They are more desirable than gold. They are sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb, for they warn us away from harm and give success to those who obey them." End quote. Psalm 119, 44 through 48. Quote, I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings and will not be put to shame, for I delight in your commands because I love them. I reach out for your commands, which I love, that I may meditate on your decrees. End quote. Leviticus 23.14, and I quote, It shall be a statute for you forever throughout all your generations and in all your dwellings. End quote. God says this about all of his feast days. Let's stop here for a moment. David uses the term forever, and Leviticus uses the term forever. Both of these terms are the Hebrew word olam. This word means, drum roll please, forever. These are eternal, never-ending, never-changing, permanent, and perpetual. Even in English, the word forever gives us no excuse. God's law, according to Moses and David, is eternal and unchanging. No, Paul does not have the authority to change or dismiss or twist these laws. 
In my essay on The Real Jesus, I discuss at length who Yeshua was and is, and what he taught from the beginning. You will find there the evidence that Yeshua also did not change, add to, or take away from any of the Torah. If we teach that Paul created doctrines proclaiming the end of the law of God, we pit David and Moses against Paul. This renders scripture inconsistent. One theory has to go. You cannot have both Paul's view of a law of God that changes alongside Moses and David's view of a law of God that is eternally unchanging. The struggle here is real and one of the most contested in American Christian doctrine. Not to mention that we destroy any testimony of Yeshua's messianic leadership with the Jewish people if we teach the modern American version of him. Jews have to reject this version of Christ and Paul as they become false prophets based on the Deuteronomy 13 test. So, let's take our own Rabbi Yeshua's word for it, shall we? From Matthew 5, 17-22, Jesus said, and I quote, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. In Matthew 5, Yeshua calls heaven and earth and their existence as witnesses to the standing, lasting law of God. Deuteronomy 19.15 states that according to two witnesses or according to three witnesses, a matter shall stand. Heaven and earth are the two witnesses here. If heaven and earth are still in existence, then so was God's law. Remember, the only law written at the time Yeshua shared this was the Torah. There is no other law in this moment. He is referencing God's instructions in the Torah. Also, a reminder here that fulfill is the Greek word plerau, which in context references filling full of meaning. Additionally, the phrase not to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill, is possibly taken from a Hebrew idiom. This phrase was used by rabbis to judge whether their students had properly interpreted the Torah. If they had interpreted well, they had fulfilled Torah. If they had interpreted poorly, they had abolished Torah. Yeshua himself says he came to fill the Torah full of right meaning, and that not one dot of it will pass as long as heaven and earth stand as witnesses. He expands the reach of the law, intimating the covenant prophecy from Jeremiah 31, which promises that the law is now moving off the stone tablets and into the hearts of those who love God. This new location is the new driver of righteous obedience. If your heart even hates your brother, you are at risk of hell. If the law is a bench press, Yeshua just added 50 pounds to it. He not only did not take away from it, Yeshua stated that your heart must soften towards the laws of God enough that you submit to it. You will begin to embody his law and will please the Spirit of God from the inside out. 
God's instructions are not abolished. They stand today, and they are being written in the hearts of his people. Understanding this, we now have Paul pitted against Yeshua, according to modern church theology. But Yeshua has to win this one, right? To love the Lord, we must submit all other doctrine to what the Lord has taught. To believe Paul's teachings, it must align with what Yeshua taught. So what do we do with Matthew 5? Conversely, what do we do with the idea that the law no longer applies to us? Are we really to believe that the God of all things came to earth and died so we could be unified with him, but that he waited for new important doctrines to be communicated through a later guy named Paul? Are we really to believe the all-knowing being that lives outside of time messed up when he gave the perfect laws to Israel and that those laws really weren't eternal, forever, perfect, holy, or good instruction? Were they less than perfect? Did God give Israel bondage as the great gift in the desert after rescuing them by so many miracles? These are valid questions. We must grapple with a God in the Old Testament who gave burdensome laws to his holy people that he rescued at such cost, and a God in the New Testament who frees his people from his own laws. This is an inconsistent character. What kind of all-knowing being makes such an egregious mistake? And if those laws don't apply to us today, what in the world is sin and what in the world are we freed from? according to modern Christian doctrine. If the law of God died on the cross, we have no need of relationship with God to free us from sin. There is now nothing defining sin from God's perspective. Sin can't exist. According to modern theology, the law has no effect. This leaves us with an alignment with Yeshua that is now subjective to what feels right in the moment. How to answer the question, what is sin? It cannot be as vague as unkindness or selfishness. No earthly judge would rule based on such inexplicit terminology. For a judge to judge rightly, there must be specific and delineated law. Our new rules, according to modern church theology, are subjective, to say the least. And a fair judge cannot use subjective rules to judge others. This is wholly unfair. How can God judge anyone if there is no law to judge them by? If the law is gone, judgment for anyone must also be gone with it. Hence, current Christianity has a grave problem. Without a clearly defined law, how can believers ever claim anyone is out of alignment with God or in need of God's gift of grace? Modern Christian doctrine on this must lead us to the idea that everyone after Yeshua is saved, or at the very least, that everyone after Yeshua is sinning less. If the Old Testament law is done away with or replaced, then nobody can equitably be judged using terms like generosity, kindness, or ideas like church attendance and communion. These are not specific enough to catalyze relationship with God. The law is the only thing that defines our true nature. It is all we possess to assess whether someone is in relationship with the God of the Bible or not. We also cannot pick and choose which laws we like. They were all given in the same five books. The idea that some of them are mosaic and some moral and some ceremonial is not really found in scripture, nor is it helpful to understanding the spiritual and physical purpose of each. The church likes to point to the Ten Commandments, but it leaves out many other important instructions in the Torah with absolutely no foundation for doing so. I love the Ten Commandments. They really are the framework for the rest of the law. In fact, I wrote an entire essay on them. But as previous essays have explicated, all the law is summed up in two, love the Lord and love others, according to Matthew 22, verse 40. All of the law is love. So why are we picking and choosing which ones we think are love when God has already told us that all of them are love? They are all of them moral and all written down by Moses. There is no biblical delineation between moral and mosaic here. 
We come across this problem when we see the sacrifices of Cain and Abel in, in, and Abraham. The law was not written in those moments. It was not mosaic or ceremonial to offer a sacrifice to the Lord at that time. It was just right. It was what God had instructed them to do. It was a relief for them to have a way to come close to God. My point, plain and simple, is this. Following the laws of God has always been about being in relationship with God. The Old Testament shows us how to be in relationship with this God. However, following the law never provided salvation for people. Adonai alone can save. Law-keeping was not known as salvation in the Old Testament, and it isn't today. We have had the wrong ideas about the relationship between law-keeping and salvation, and it is time to bring them into alignment with Yeshua. You will come across the idea of moral law versus mosaic law versus ceremonial laws, and while some authors handle it with care, others abuse these delineations to create a supposedly new law consisting of pieces picked and chosen out of Moses according to, well, mostly Paul and the misinterpretations of Paul's discussions. Yeshua doesn't distinguish between which laws he thinks are right or not. He just says the law when he talks about it. We need to treat it as he did. In one terrifying and clarifying moment, Yeshua looks to a future conversation with people who have fallen into this problematic modern church doctrine with disastrous results. From Matthew 7, verses 22 through 23, and I quote, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Yeshua tells us he will judge in the end those who work lawlessness. Those who do not live according to his law have no place in his kingdom. With such a terrifying future judgment to look forward to, would you not expect Yeshua to be specific about which laws he will judge by? But he isn't. Because all of the law is his, and none of it is extinguished. And for right now, we're going to stop there today. I hope... um, I hope this is helping to hammer this issue out for you and at least my thoughts on this issue so you can understand some of my previous podcasts and some of my future podcasts. We're going to dig in even deeper and even deeper into more specific sections of Paul that are constantly brought up and used in modern church church doctrine. We're going to really look at those in the next section next week when I read some more of this chapter. I pray and hope for many blessings for you this week. And I hope that you all, if you haven't gotten my book, uh, reach out to me. I'd love to send you a signed copy. Um, And if you haven't signed up for the upgraded podcast where you get more of my podcasts and you help to fund this particular uh, work that I am doing, um, I would love it if you would consider the $5 a month upgrade to the podcast. All right, y'all. Till next time.